0: Book of Jude, hopefully you're there, everybody, and all of you at home, hopefully you're there in the book of Jude. Now, Jude is a much-needed book for us here, yet it's funny because it's sandwiched between these writings of John, right? We've got the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, then we've got the, the revelation that John recorded in the book of Revelation, and then in between, these books written by the apostle of love. You've got Jude, which is kind of interesting. It'd be as though, you know, it'd be like me lining up next to Sidney Crosby and then Alexander Ovechkin and being chosen to pick who's going to score the most goals. It's like, I don't stand a chance in that. But you see, rather than Jude being overshadowed, this postcard-sized letter is like throwing down some Frank's Red Hot Sauce on a chicken sandwich it might be spicy, but it is also good, right? And that's what the Book of Jude is for us here. It's necessary. It's good. Now, who, the when, the why? Jude is the writer of this book. He's the half brother Jesus. We'll talk a little bit more about him. Jude probably wrote this somewhere, um, you know, around sixty six to sixty nine A D. Um, seems many believe as before the fall of Jerusalem in seventy A D. So that's probably a good timeline. And why did he write this? Well. Jude was living in a day, like ours, where toleration was preferred over truth. People were doing what they desired rather than what God desired. False teachers were promoting their own message rather than the message of Jesus. So Jude's writing to say, listen, my friends, you need to contend for the faith. You need to avoid... Heresy and heretics, avoid false teaching and false teachers. This is why Jude is writing this. He writes to have them contend for the faith because Jude is writing to combat apostates. In fact, this small epistle, we've got the Acts of the Apostles in the book of Acts. Jude has been known as the Acts of the Apostates because he's writing to address these people that are creeping into the church with a wrong, false, unhealthy message. Now, what is an apostate exactly? Well, according to the dictionary, it's one who abandons a particular religious belief or principle. It's a defector. We saw John in his epistles warn the church against these kinds of people. Peter also does so in his epistle. In fact, we're going to see as we get to it soon in a couple of Sundays that in 2 Peter chapter 2, we see a lot of kind of similar things being written from Jude and 2 Peter chapter 2, a lot of things that are very much closely correlating with one another. In fact, some believe that one of these two probably borrowed much of the content from that. Perhaps Jude borrowing from Peter or Peter borrowing from Jude here and adding these things because they're both dealing with these kinds of things coming into the church to try to change the message, apostates coming in. Now, these things that Jude wrote about, sadly have only intensified in our day, wouldn't you say? I mean, these are the things that we see. The attacks against the truth don't always come from outright apostates against the truth, but rather what we see happening a lot of times today in our day is that it comes from those who proclaim to be proponents of the truth. And in so doing, they kind of look to try to twist God's word around a little bit. They try to change, corrupt, or, or add to it. Per se, and yet all along claiming to be followers of Jesus. Today, it's not just non Christians that have a very light or low view of God's word. It's also those that are Christians that have a very low view of God's word. You know that we're in trouble when the most quoted Bible verse is God helps those who help themselves, which, sorry to burst your bubbles, not in the Bible, right? But yet, many people think that. And in a Gallup poll that was conducted a few years ago, 82% of Americans believed that that was a Bible verse. So, so Jude's an important book that's meant to get us on guard, to stand up against falsehood and untruths and lies that are, are, are creeping in from people that seem like they have an authority, coming from people that seem like they know what they're talking about, but yet Jude says, as we'll see, you need to contend for the faith. You need to hold on. You need to make sure that what is coming from other people is in line with God's word. So here's the outline that we're going to look at as we go through this epistle of Jude. We're going to see, first of all, warning concerning apostates. We're going to see examples of apostates in the past, actions of apostates in the present, outcome of apostates in the future, and then victory over Apostates. So that's kind of how we're going to break down this book. Let's look at this warning concerning apostates. Verse one says this: Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So Jude identifies himself as the writer of this letter. But again, the question is, which Jude? We've kind of already identified him, but there were many Judes that were spoken of in Scripture, six in all. This Jude, like I said earlier, is the half-brother of Jesus. He mentions James, who is also a half-brother of Jesus, the writer of the epistle of James. Jude and James were brothers, half-brothers of Jesus. Now, we know that during Jesus' ministry, his brothers do not believe in him, which is shocking, isn't it? John chapter 7, verse 3-5 gives us that context of when they were going down to the feast and his brothers were all saying, Hey, Jesus, why don't you take this time to really show yourself, proclaim yourself to be this guy you say you are. But it says there in verse 5 of John 7 that they, his brothers, did not believe in him. And it's crazy to think that, isn't it? That Jesus grew up with people living with them, and yet did not believe in him. We sometimes beat ourselves up wondering... Why aren't our family members being converted? Am I doing that bad of a job witnessing? We can tend to think, right? Yet with Jesus, it wasn't so much that he did anything wrong. It was that these people had a hard heart. But what happened was, it was through his death and resurrection that brought his brothers around. Because both James and James becomes the, the leader of the Jerusalem church, the early church, writing the book of James. Jude now, writing and contributing to scripture. I mean, these guys had a great turnaround, And all came through seeing the cross, seeing the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So too, we must realize that there's power in the message of the cross. This is where people will begin to get, that's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1, 23, but we preach Christ crucified. He's like, that's it, man. I'm not gonna come in with a bunch of other stuff and fluff, man. I'm just gonna preach Christ crucified. Because it's when people recognize that their sin leads to death, but Jesus stepped in and paid their fine he brought forgiveness of their sin. He brought life for them. In fact, Jesus stands as that witness now for us of life, newness of life. That perhaps caused Jude and James to go, oh my goodness, yeah, I want, I want that. And their hearts were changed, and notice that in the opening of the book of Acts, after Christ's Work was complete and his resurrection was evident. The disciples gathered together as Jesus instructed. And we see in Acts 1.14 that Mary was there along with his brothers, it says in Acts 1.14. Along with his brothers. It didn't take long and they recognized he's the real deal. They were confronted with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, may we always continue to bring people to the cross and to their need for life and ultimately newness of life in Jesus. So here's Jude. And, and after all his experience now, notice how he identifies himself. It's the same as how James does in his epistle because Jude says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a bondservant. See, he could have you know, been the biggest name dropper of all. Don't you love sometimes to kind of drop things like, oh man, I know so-and-so. Now, I, I can't do that because I, I don't know any famous people, right? I mean, so, but it's nice when you kind of meet somebody and say like, I was I met this person right, and we left an angel drop. But and Jude could have easily done that. He could have said, "Listen, everybody, I'm the brother of Jesus. So listen to me, right? Give me, you know, give me some importance or preeminence here." But he says, "No, I'm a bond servant of Jesus." Remember what a bond servant was? A bond servant was a person that was able to be free. They've lived as a servant. They've 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 done all this work for the master, but there came a point where they were allowed to be free. But the, bonds, the, the servant said, you know what? I love my master. I don't want to go anywhere else. I want to stay and serve my master. He's, he's a good master. And so the master would take them out, pierce his ear. It would reveal that this is a servant now by choice. He's chosen himself to stay with this master. That's what Jude recognized as himself now. I'm choosing to be with Jesus, and I'm just recognizing, or I'm just, I'm just confessing that I'm just simply a servant of Him, a bond servant. I love that. Now, we're going to see in the Book of Jude that he often writes in these triads. In fact, some have said that uh, these groups of three. Some have said that there's these triads. About eighteen of them in the Book of Jude. So your job tonight is to figure out all 18 of them and then report back to me later with the answer, okay? But no, uh, but it's interesting. We saw these triads and so we see them happening right here because he says in verse one, to those who are called, sanctified, and preserved, okay? We'll see in verse two, mercy, peace, and love. So there's those triads, groups of three that Jude likes to pick out. Now, he says to those who are called, we recognize many are called, but not many answer. And here's the great thing. The invitation goes out to all. And all who answer are the called. That's it. We never have to wrestle and wonder, am I one of the chosen ones? Am I one of the called? If you've responded to the invitation that's gone out to everybody, then you're one of the called. Let's leave it at that, right? And then he says, sanctified ones. That's those who are set apart from the world and set apart to God. And then those who are preserved. Preserved how? We're preserved in, in Jesus Christ. We're protected and kept safe through Jesus. I pray that we're resting in that preservation, in that protection, in that peace that we have in Jesus. There's a triad of peace for you there, preserved, protected and in peace with Jesus. I love that idea of being preserved. It's the same word Peter used. In, in first Peter one, verse three to four, when he said, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. Here's the word reserved in heaven for you. That's the word preserved. So in other words, what, what Peter says that we have life and incorruptible inheritance that's reserved or Preserved in heaven, so too now we see that we have a, a reservation or a preservation in Jesus. He's reserving us for heaven. He's preserving us for eternal life. That speaks to great security, doesn't it? Isn't that wonderful? One commentator said this, we're preserved from danger, damage, defilement, and damnation. Hallelujah for that, right? Preservation that takes us through this world but leads us safely to heaven praise the lord and then he says mercy peace and love be multiplied to you i i love the way that god does math it's not just adding things he likes to multiply things to you he likes to bless you abundantly and Judas writing saying oh man i know that this is the heart of my savior so mercy peace and love be multiplied to you he goes on to say verse three beloved while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you, and here it is, kind of the purpose of his letter, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, it's interesting that Jude was apparently all ready to write a nice, you know, encouraging letter of the common salvation i will share. That's kind of what he says, Right? but he was instead directed, no doubt, by the Holy Spirit to write to them to contend for the faith. It's kind of like this call to arms that Jude gives to his to his audience, which his audience is a very broad audience because it encompasses all those who are in Christ. He's not writing to a specific church, a specific region. This just goes out to everybody that's a part of the family of God, right? And, and so he writes, it's kind of this call to arms now. Now, the, that idea of contend earnestly is this Greek word, epigonizomai. Sounds good, doesn't it? I don't know if I said that right, but it's, it's only found here in the New Testament. This is the only place that you'll see this Greek word for contend earnestly. The simple verb was used of athletes contending in the athletic contest. The word speaks of a vigorous, intense, determined struggle to defeat the opposition. Just think of a wrestling match in a sense. Our word agony is the English spelling of the noun form of this word. The Greek athletes exerted themselves to the point of agony in an effort just to win the contest. So with such intense effort, Jude says that saints should defend the doctrines of Christianity in the same manner. It might be a struggle at times. It might be agonizing, but contend. Fight for the truth, in other words. Our faith is something that's worth fighting for. We can be pretty wimpy sometimes when it comes to defending biblical truths. And we hear somebody say something dumb or unbiblical. We can find ourselves so easy to say, "Ah, you know what? They're, you know, they're foolish." But I'm not going to make a big deal about it right now. I don't want to get into any conflict. We have an easy time just sort of turning the cheek on these things, but. Are we willing to stand up and defend truth? Are we willing, when it might be agonizing to do so, to say, hey, you know what, let me just kind of point you rather in the right direction and in what the truth of God's word actually says here. That's what Jude is encouraging us to do. And this faith is not speaking about, you know, your own personal belief here. This is speaking of the essential truth of the gospel that true Christians are going to hold in common. This isn't my truth or your truth or you know my faith or your faith. This is the faith, the one faith. I like how Jude shows it was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, this is a one-time faith that is good and and never expires. Right? It doesn't run out. It doesn't have to get renewed. It doesn't have to have updates to it. This is the faith that's been given once for all to the saints. In other words, it doesn't need to be changed, altered, or revised. It was delivered once for all. So when someone comes to you with a revelation or a so-called truth beyond what the Bible says, what are we to do? Reject it, right? Have nothing to do with it. There's nothing more that needs to be given than what we have in the Word of God. And yet, in some Christian circles, that seems to be the, the common thing of the day, bringing a revelation from the Lord that oftentimes goes beyond or, or supersedes the word of God. Oh, I'm, I'm not saying that God can't speak to people today and speak through people today. No doubt he does, and he, and he will. But let's make sure that it always lines up with the word of God. And that's what Judas is reminding us here tonight. Because he says in verse four, for certain men have crept in, notice this, unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude's taking a stand immediately against these false teachers. They've come in unnoticed. See, in other words, understand that that people oftentimes, when they're following falsehoods or, you know, they're, in a cult or whatever, they're not going to come in and say, hey, listen, I've got something so different for you. Or this word is so wrong. Let me give you something better. Oftentimes, they're going to come in unnoticed. They're going to sound like a Christian. They're going to walk like a Christian. They're going to look like a Christian. But again, we need to evaluate what do they really believe? What truth are they really holding on to? Because Jews says, these guys came in unnoticed. People just kind of thought, oh yeah, they're one of us. It's wonderful, it's great. But Jude says, and, and, and it's interesting because what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13 and 15? For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing of his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. So, there you have it from another apostle. These false teachers have a way of slipping in under the radar. That's why it's important to contend for the faith, for the gospel to be on guard, because there have been those and will be those that slip in unnoticed to pervert the truth very subtly. So what were these heretics all about? Well, they were saying that, you know, since God has shown us grace, that we can just go on and... And do what we want now We can sin, we can do whatever we want Because God's grace then just begins to flow even more They would say I can do what I want because God said we're all sinners So if we just go on and sin We just prove God to be right And it just allows Him to allow His grace to continue to flow And so they were doing things in a very lewd way They turned the grace of our God into lewdness. So what they would say is this: basically, we can just go ahead and and please our fleshly lusts and desires. These, These apostates had no problem entertaining sin and turned it around to say, this just allows God's grace to flow all the more. It was ludicrous logic. And it led to lewdness. They also denied Jesus Christ. This perhaps was... Again, that early form of Gnosticism that we've seen in the, in the epistles of John that we've talked about in, in our study through Peter's epistles. They did not believe that he Gnostic teaching felt that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. And since all matter was evil, they felt it was all right just to pleasure the flesh since it was evil already. So Jude says they'd been marked out long ago for condemnation. Now, that seems very interesting, but understand this is not saying that God has selected these people to be condemned. It's not like God says, okay, I need some people now that I'm going to mark out for condemnation. Let's say I'm going to take you, I'm going to take you, you're marked out now for condemnation. That's not the idea here, right? God has not appointed people to damnation, all right? Rather, this expression is revealing that the judgment of apostates has been predetermined. In other words, that that God has already chosen that those who don't follow him are going to be condemned. They may have been unnoticed by men. They may have come in unnoticed, but they won't be unnoticed by God. God sees, God knows. And God's got them marked for judgment if they do not repent and turn to him. So Jude now gives three examples of how God's judgment has been certain, as it will be for these certain men here. So we look at now in verse 5, examples of apostates from the past. Look at verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So Jude is bringing up some examples now of ways that God has acted on those who did not continue on in the faith, and in trusting God, living for God. He brings up now, you know, the exodus, basically. The Hebrew people lived in Egypt for 400 years, and God heard their cry and delivered them out miraculously at the exodus from the heavy hand of Pharaoh. God led them to safety. He provided for them, remember? He, he provided food for them. He was a, a pillar cloud uh, by day that led them, protected them from the sun, a pillar of fire by night that warmed them, that continued to guide them. God was so good to them. They should begin to get the idea that there was nothing too great for God to do, that God was all they needed to continue to, to put their faith and trust in, because God has already shown and proven himself faithful. However, when they came up to the promised land, right, they sent the 12 spies in. Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report. The rest of them said, oh, no, 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 no. There were giants in that land and we seemed like grasshoppers next to them. If we go in there, we're going to die. And they spread this report among the camp and everybody got polluted by that doubt and unbelief. So what did God do? Well, it was an easy way to get in the promised land, but because of that unbelief, he caused them to stay in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died out. Only Joshua and Caleb from that generation were able to enter into the promised land. These two men that exemplified faith. Jude shows that just as this group of false teachers may have started off well, they too turned in their faith. They were apostate. They defected. And God is going to judge that. It's a good lesson for us as well. Because we may have been those that started out well in our Christian faith. Been off to a good start, but maybe, maybe unbelief has begun to creep in. Maybe we've doubted God's power. Unbelief, you see, is going to cause us to be crippled in our spiritual walk. It's gonna hold us back from the things of God when God has so much for us. Don't let unbelief creep in and derail you. Let's continue on by faith, trusting God. The very God who's big enough to save us, forgive us of our sin and give us new life is the same God that's gonna continue to help us and move us along until we receive that eternal life with him. Keep trusting him for everything. Don't doubt. Don't don't have that that lack of faith in your life. Keep allowing that faith to grow and prosper. Verse 6, another example, and he says in the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, we come upon a very Controversial passage, right? Who are these angels that are now chained and being reserved for judgment? Interesting scenario here. We know that Satan led a rebellion in the heavens, puffed up with pride. He was cast out of heaven and he took a third of the angels with him. Isaiah 14, verse 12, Ezekiel 28, 14, allude to that. We know that demons are active in the world today as Satan's emissaries, looking to bring temptation, lead people astray. But what about these Angels now that are imprisoned. Reserved in everlasting chains. Well, I think we need to go back to Genesis 6. To look at another equally controversial passage. And it's only controversial in the sense that it has brought a lot of um, you know debate over what is really happening here. And here's what it says there. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose and the Lord said my spirit shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed flesh yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So when you read through Genesis, you ask, well, who are the sons of God being spoken of here? Now, it does refer to angels elsewhere in the word of God. So this passage, many have taken it to believe that this is speaking of angels who left their place in the heavens and came down and had unnatural unions with the daughters of men. Notice that afterwards, there were giants on the earth, literally referred to as Nephilim, something different. Mighty or fallen ones is what it means. And that age at that time became so wicked, so much so that God... Saw the need to wipe out all the creation with a flood. He spared eight people only. Something drastic took place that called for drastic measures. Now, that's just an idea and a theory. Don't, I mean, that's one interpretation of that passage. But it's one that I think holds some water because in the next verse in Jude, Jude says, in a similar manner to these angels now, Sodom and Gomorrah gave themselves over to sexual immorality and went after strange flesh. Look at this in verse 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. They're set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So, a third example now. We've seen the Israel people who because of unbelief, or kept out and judged. We see the angels who are now judged for perhaps leaving this place of abode and coming in and having this unholy union with the daughters of men. And now we see Sodom and Gomorrah again as those that have given themselves over to strange flesh. So these were, were fruitful, prosperous places, Sodom and Gomorrah. But the inhabitants of them began to get comfortable in their surroundings and began to take for granted the blessings of God, they turned to a life of self-gratification and lust. And God brought judgment upon them, how? Through fire from heaven. Just as God brought judgment on the angels that left their abode. So Jude writes to show that whatever background these false teachers have come from, whatever previous blessing they may have had in their life, it'll all be for nothing as God will surely bring judgment as they've left that place that they once were in relationship to God, they've left it, now they're going to face judgment as a result. And then we move into verse 8 where we see the actions of apostates in the present now. Verse 8 says, Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries. See, when Jude uses the word likewise, he's connecting these false teachers with the examples from those in Sodom and Gomorrah. They themselves defile the flesh by engaging in immoral behavior. They, re- they reject authority by rebelling against God and, and those that God has placed in authority. These apostates come in and they just answer to nobody. They're like their own boss here. And they don't just stop at ignoring authority, they speak evil of those who are in high positions. See, when people begin to reject truth and live as they want, you see the downward spiral of Depravity begin to set in in their lives I mean, once you begin to just kind of open the door To these things Man, it just begins to get, uh, become a slippery slope That more things begin to get done In this path of depravity Jude captures the attitude of these apostates Quite nicely by saying they're dreamers They're kind of living in a fantasy world Where they rule as kings where they're their own boss. They're their own lords, in a sense. They're dreamers, Jude says. And then Jude says in verse 9, yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. These false teachers spoke evil dignitaries, yet we see now Jude bring up a very high-ranking angel who even in a high position of authority did not come with a bad word against one that deserved it. I mean, the devil deserves to be rebuked, but even Michael the archangel would not speak against the devil on his own accord. If Michael, who abides in the very presence of God, wouldn't talk on his own authority, how much more should these men that Jude is bringing up not do as well? Now, this is an interesting account as well when Jude brings up this little confrontation between Michael and Satan over the body of Moses. That's not mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. It's something Jude kind of throws in. It's very possible he received this information by direct revelation from God. Some believe, however, that this was a story taken from an apocryphal book called The Assumption of Moses. The story basically reads... The archangel Michael was sent to bury Moses' body when Lucifer intercepted him to claim the body. And Michael showed no disrespect when Lucifer came, but left the matter to the judge of all creatures, saying, the Lord rebuke you. Now the question is, why were they arguing over it? What was your dispute over the body of Moses? No one really knows. Some believe Satan was trying to prevent God from doing anything with it, because Moses, we know, would later appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Some believe that he's going to be one of the two witnesses that are going to show up again um, in Revelation in the tribulation period. So God had future plans for Moses' body. Others wonder Satan wanted to use it to lead Israel into idolatry by showing where this grave was of their great leader Moses that would just cause the nation of Israel to fall into idolatry, creating no doubt a shrine and a place of worship there. We don't know exactly. All right? But but Jude puts it in there and God allowed that to be put in there. It was led by the Holy Spirit. This was something that uh, was needed to be in there. So if Michael spoke to Satan on the Lord's authority and not his own, how much more do we need to be those that follow those same kinds of guidelines now? I kind of cringe when I... I hear people threatening the devil saying, devil, I'll rebuke you or I'm going to give Satan a big old kick to the butt, you know and they just kind of talk this way like they've got something on Satan it's like, oh my goodness, you know what I certainly don't have any business in my own ability it's always through the Lord and it's only through the Lord that, that Satan is going to be bound, kept or, you know, driven away it's only through the Lord and not us and if Michael, the archangel, is doing that, how much more do we? So verse 10, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know. Speaking of the apostates. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. So these guys, would, would, they would blaspheme, they would, they would put down things they had no comprehension of, mainly the truth of the gospel, right? I mean, they're just kind of making a mockery of this, putting it down, speaking evil of it. However, the things that came naturally to them, which was like sinful activity, fleshly impulses, they were rushing into it like brute beasts. It was this that was tripping them up, corrupting them, causing them to be further led away from the Lord. So Jude says, Woe to them, for they've gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. There's another triad that Jude brings up here. Three more examples from Israel's history, of the folly of these apostates. The way of Cain. Now We're all familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. And as we look at this in the light of Hebrews 11.4, we see that Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So, whether or not that was Cain coming with just sort of a wrong heart... Or coming with a wrong kind of sacrifice because he's being selfish in what he's keeping for himself. We don't know exactly, but Cain came devising his own means of worship to God, and that led to a heart of hatred and anger towards his brother Abel, to where Cain was driven to murder him—the first recorded murder in Scripture. He went astray. Cain left that place of honoring God to do what he desired. An example of these apostates And then there's the era of Balaam Jude's taking an example from Numbers 22 To to chapter 24 Where Balaam is mentioned um, And and spoken of Where he was hired by Balak um, To come and Curse Israel And Balaam interestingly Is mentioned three times In the close of the Bible In, In 2 Peter it's the way of Balaam in Jude 11 here, it's the heir of Balaam. And in Revelation 2.14, it's the doctrine of Balaam. So he's mentioned three times at the close of the Scripture. We're going to get into the story of Balaam a little bit more in 2 Peter chapter 2 when we get to it. But suffice it to say, he was a man that was driven by greed rather than God. Rather than desire to honor God. He didn't follow the Lord's direction when, and he went beyond it. Even instructing King Balak how to cause Israel to to sin which would ensure their defeat. That's what Balaam did. Sadly, we see that taking place all too often in the name of Christianity today. Evangelists or, or teachers, etc., who are trying to profit from the gospel, profit off of the gospel, twisting the truth of the gospel just so they can make a buck. They've gone in that era of Balaam. And then Jude mentions the rebellion of Korah. That's rebellion stemming from pride. Because number 16 gives us the account, Korah was a Levite, but not of the priestly family of Aaron. And he was not content with his role, so he challenged Moses. The end of it was that God opened up the earth and swallowed him and his family up. And all of his supporters, are were consumed with fire. Korah, motivated by pride and carrying out a lack of respect for those that were in authority gives an accurate description of these certain men who've crept in unnoticed, seeking to promote themselves. The apostate teachers have been declared, as well as their impending judgment, what we've seen so far, but now Jude takes some time to vividly describe these apostate teachers. Verse 12 says, these are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they're clouds without water, carried about by the winds, Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So a lot of very vivid descriptions describing what these apostates are like. Spots in your love feast could literally mean they're like hidden rocks. Not only did they come and put a stain on what this love feast was to be all about, but they were like these hidden rocks because... In that days, you would go out, you know, in a boat sailing, whatever it was. When you cruise around, you have to be very aware of coming upon, you know, shallow waters where you might run yourself upon a rock and perhaps put a hole in your boat, right? These guys are like those hidden rocks that caused people to get shipwrecked. People's lives were as they as they came in contact with these apostates. They never showed a shepherd's heart. They never showed care. They weren't willing to walk in, in sacrifice for the betterment of others. They only cared about themselves, which went against everything that this love feast particularly was all about, because that love feast was all about sharing, giving, helping your fellow brother or sister. Jude says they were like clouds without water. Now, we're not very familiar with that here in the Northwest, clouds without water. Typically when you see clouds, it's accompanied with water, right? But in many parts of the world, they depend upon the rain for nourishment and to grow crops, etc. Right? Various regions go through extreme droughts. And it's a welcome sight when you see a cloud coming. They're looking at that going, Oh, finally we're gonna get some water, we're gonna be able to grow our crops. But Jude says these apostates, so like the clouds that show up, and everybody's thinking, oh, wonderful, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, they're they're void of the things that we need. They're empty. There's nothing to them. They're not providing anything good. They're a big disappointment. They're late autumn trees without fruit. As trees should be fruitful, by late autumn these apostates were fruitless and Jude says they're twice dead. Not only did they not bear fruit, but they were incapable of it. They were dead to the very core and they needed to be uprooted. These false teachers never showed any sign of being regenerated, of having the ability to give life. They're raging waves of the sea. They're wandering stars. You you get the idea here. Raging waves of the sea just kind of pour in, right? And they bring with it a lot of, you know, sea foam or, or junk. And, and and Jude says here that they are like that. Um, they're like the waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. Those waves come in from the ocean and a lot of times you just see a lot of sea scum and foam on the beach. That's kind of like what these apostates for like, Wandering stars. They're like shooting stars that show a lot of flash and dazzle yet quickly fade out. The apostates came on the scene. People thought, oh man, look at what they've got for us. But quickly they began to lose that glimmer and shine as people began to realize they're just like a shooting star that has fizzled out altogether. And for them is reserved the blackness of darkness forever, which is speaking of hell ultimately. So then we see now the outcome of apostates in the future. Look at verse 14. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Jude brings up Enoch, a man that walked with God and was not according to Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, because God took him. We don't know much about Enoch from the word other than that. But Jude shed some insight into the word that Enoch preached. And it was a message of judgment. Some in the church may be wondering, why God is not stopping these people? But Jude assures them that Jesus is coming. And if it is not taken care of before that day they will eventually face judgment for their actions in that day that Jesus comes. And and so Jude quotes again from the book of Enoch an apocryphal writing. It doesn't mean that this extra-biblical book is inspired or equal to Scripture, but simply that that particular portion of it is true and accurate, and and it gives some, again, backing to the things that Jude is speaking of. Paul himself quoted from, you know, pagan authors... Right? in Acts chapter 17, quote these different authors that were there in that day. doesn't mean that they're quotable or that they're, they're teaching you on the same level as Scripture, but again, they were fitting at that time for what Scripture was saying. It, it's certainly interesting to see a man like Enoch prophesying in Jesus' second coming, coming back with all of the saints, just as Revelation describes in Revelation 19. Enoch prophesied of it thousands of years before even his first coming, That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? So, Jude says in verse 16, These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. These apostates are eventually going to show their fruit, or I should say their lack of fruit. They speak that which people want to hear so as to win their support. But you, Jude says in verse 17, But you, beloved, remember the words which are spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. See, all through Scripture, we've seen authors saying, listen, be aware. These things are going to happen. As the days grow on, you're going to see more and more people growing cold and moving away from the faith. In fact, Paul would say, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And then in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 to 4, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. So Paul warned of this. Jude is saying, listen, understand that this is what's going to happen. You've been told that there'd be mockers that would come would walk according to their own desires. So we shouldn't be surprised by these things. We shouldn't be surprised by the way that, that the Bible is being undermined, in a sense. People questioning the littleness, the legitimacy, the authority of God's word. And that's coming from people within the church. Sadly, we shouldn't be surprised. It's It's unfortunate. But again, it's why we need to contend for the faith. We need to fight for what is true and right. Jude says in verse 19, these are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. Listen, you're either going to be led along by your own fleshy appetites, or you're going to have the Holy Spirit filling you, leading you, and causing your life to be more Christ-like in how you live. If we see our life causing more harm than good, more pain than blessing, more sorrow than joy in others. We're going to ask ourselves, am I really filled with the Spirit? Am I a person that has the Spirit or more so the Spirit has me? Because if I'm walking in a way that's causing these things, then I need to question, am I really being governed and led by the Spirit? These people showed no sign of the Spirit in them because they were sensual, going after their own desires, and they cause divisions. Well, Jude's been painting a picture for us here of these false teachers, these apostates that have gone and twisted the truth now. Their character and actions are, are clearly described and marked out for us. Past examples, their present realities, future judgment, but Jude doesn't instruct us to go after them or bring them down. Rather, Jude provides some loving guidance and encouragement to be faithful in the midst of apostasy. So in these final verses, we see this encouragement toward the believer in self, the believer in sinners, and the believer and our Savior. Look at this here. And here's how we see this as victory over apostasy. It's verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. The key here is what? It says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's where these apostates went wrong. Now, it wasn't that God stopped loving them, because that love of God continues to go out. God's love is always shining down, raining down on people, but people can remove themselves from the the rays of that love, from the place where that love is flowing down to them. It's not that God stopped loving you, but that we allowed things to get in the way of us experiencing that love. That was the case with the prodigal son, right? His father was there waiting for him. His father never stopped loving him, but his son had removed him from that place of enjoying and receiving the benefits and blessings of that love. I I, I think, you know the illustration of a lunar eclipse is so fitting that paints that out for us. Because you can take the moon and the sun is shining on it. The moon is just reflecting that light of the sun. But in a lunar eclipse, what happens? The world, the earth, gets in the way of that sun shining on the moon and the, the moon goes dark for a time it's the same in our lives where we can oftentimes allow the world to kind of get in the way of us receiving and reflecting the the blessings and the benefits of the Lord. Seeing His love shining down on us. Things can easily get allowed in that block out those things. And when that happens, we no longer are, as Jude says, keeping ourselves in the love of God. So Jude gives us some practical ways to keep ourselves in the love of God here. He says, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. In other words, as a believer, keep growing, keep adding to your faith, like what Peter talked about in 2 Peter 1, verse 5 to 7. Add to your faith virtue, and, and to virtue... Anybody remember? Peter had to give us reminders in those things, didn't he, right? Like we talked about this past Sunday. Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge... And the knowledge, self-control, the self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. And so we're to add to our faith. In other words, we're to keep growing, keep building, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Jude says, and he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. How we need to be led of the Holy Spirit in our in our prayer life and the things that we're seeking that we're constantly in line with the heart of the Father and with God's will. And Jude says, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's such a key for us. And that's, I believe, speaking of the imminent return of Jesus. Looking, the mercy of our Lord has already been extended to us. We don't have to walk around looking for it. But what Jude says is looking for the day that that's going to be realized in full when we see him face to face, how we need to have a healthy outlook of the future. We need to have an excitement for the soon return of Jesus. There's many Christians who just say, ah, you know what, bah. I don't want to worry about that. I don't want to be bothered by that. People have been saying this for centuries, that it's, eh, we're still... But I believe God has designed every generation to have that sort of expectation and excitement for the imminent return of Jesus. 1 John 3 3 says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. There's blessings that come as we have that hope and that expectation of the soon and imminent return of Jesus I can come at any day when our mercy or the mercy of our Lord will finally be realized in full. Verse 22, and on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. With some people that are led down the sort of deception, we didn't have compassion on them. We don't just say, oh, that's too bad. Man, they made a wrong call there. We need to have wisdom and speak truth in their lives. We need to make a distinction of how we minister to them. But with others, we need to be a little bit more firm with them, right? And lay out the reality to them. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, did pretty much that. Some people, you just need to take firmness in and tell them they are going to perish apart from Christ. But you need to exercise wisdom and discernment. Some people are in that place. Because they've been fed alive themselves, we have discernment in how we minister to them, having compassion, but others we' going to lay out the, the cold, hard truth, and at times contend, struggle with them for the truth. And then we see in verse twenty four and twenty five "I love this ending of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. What a great doxology. What a great way to end here. Those that say life is hard, that keeping yourselves in the love of God is too difficult, forget the one who is able, who's helping you. It's Jesus. See, when we put our trust in ourselves, or others to keep us from stumbling, we're going to fall. We're going to fail. We need to realize Jesus is, as Jude mentioned earlier, protecting and preserving us. He's keeping us for heaven. He's holding us up. He's keeping you from stumbling. And he's going to present you one day as faultless before the Father. How so? You might ask. How can that be? Well, that word faultless does not mean without sin. It means having no justifiable ground of accusation. It means that when he's presenting you faultless, it's that there's nothing that you can accuse him of because why? We're in Christ and we're now clothed in his righteousness. Jesus, you see, has wiped our record of guilt clean. When you usually present something to someone, you do so in a very proud way and Jesus is going to present us before our Heavenly Father, as faultless. He's not going to be ashamed or doing so half-heartedly. Well, Lord, here they are. I mean, they, they did the best they could. I mean, can we have a little bit more grace? So No, he's going to present us, though. Father, they're mine. I've paid the price for them to be here. And to be wrapped in my righteousness and not of their own. And it says... He's going to present us before God with exceeding joy. We're his bride. We're the ones that he died for. That he's constantly interceding for, Hebrews tells us. He's preserving us. He's going to bring us to heaven with him. Jude writes with such confidence here. And he gives all praise and glory to God to the one who's able to keep us from stumbling, and present us before our Heavenly Father with exceeding joy. Oh, what a day that's going to be. Listen, my friends, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in that place where you are, are growing in your faith, continuing to rely upon all that Jesus has done for you. Don't stray from that. There's nothing else out there apart from what we have in Jesus. And one day we're going to see the reality of it all when he presents us as faultless in his righteousness. Praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you here tonight and we understand and know that we, in and of ourselves, we stumble and we fall, we mess up, we fail. But as Jude concludes his letter, he reminds us that we're looking to the one who's able to keep us from stumbling and will one day present us faultless before our Heavenly Father. What an incredible reality that is. And Lord, as Jude has written to us here tonight to contend for the faith, I pray that we'll be those that live in your truth, that abide in your truth, that know your truth. And Lord, we don't aggressively go after those that contradict that but we simply come with the gospel with the truth and we continue to uphold it and live for it and stand on it help us to do that Lord I thank you for this church I thank you that this is a church that Lord stands upon the word of God as full truth for us and I pray that we as a church will continue to grow in this, that we'll add to our faith, that we'll be strengthened these things, and that we'll live in a way that we are a, a witness of this truth and good news. Lord, I'm so looking forward to seeing this place be filled and people coming in, and I pray that you will add to this church, Lord, those that are seeking truth right now, that are dissatisfied with the things of the world. Continue to stir people's hearts and lead them to you, Jesus. And may we be that instrument that will help point people to you, Jesus, here as your church. So Lord, we ask that you just continue to do a, a great work here and, and in our own lives personally. So we ask these things now in your awesome and precious name, Jesus. Amen.